Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre. Make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright, and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. By the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The war horse is a false hope for salvation and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who, who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. And our second reading will be from Colossians, chapter 1, verses 15 to 20. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him... All things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on, on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Our loving, powerful, almighty God, uh, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you that you have created the heavens and the earth. Uh, we thank you that you have created us. Father, as we open your word this morning, as we uh, come to terms with uh, your majesty and your power, uh, we pray that you would humble us, that you would help us to, um, to appreciate who you are as Father, Son, and Spirit, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And I pray that you'd help us to appreciate this in our hearts and respond in humility and praise. Pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you were to open the Bible to the first page, what's the first thing you learn about God? You learn in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The first thing we learn about God is that He is the creator of everything. And if you call yourself a Christian, then this is a fundamental aspect of how you view view reality. Uh, How you view reality is twofold. There is God who alone is creator, and then there is His creation, of which we are a part of. Reality is twofold. And now I suspect most of us would, uh, if, you're, if you call yourself a Christian, would happily believe that God is the creator of the universe. But does it matter whether or not we know and understand that this creator is triune? Does it matter? That's our question for today. Why don't you turn to the person next to you and ask each other this question. If you, if you don't know each other, introduce yourselves, obviously. Do that first. Uh, but then ask yourselves each other, does it make a difference whether we understand our Creator to be triune? Does it make a difference? If it does, what is that difference? If not, why not? All right, turn to people around you, discuss this question, and we'll come back in a little bit. Um, as I looked around the room... <laughs> I could see a lot, of, uh, a lot of confused faces, a lot of blank stares, a lot of nervous laughter. Uh, maybe you're talking about the weekend, I don't know. Um, does it matter? Does it make a difference? Well, let's consult a church creed to see what it says. Two weeks ago, we had a look at the Athanasian Creed. This time, we're going to have a look at the Apostles' Creed. Uh, And the opening line goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. This creed attributes the work of creation to God the Father and makes no mention whether this work is triune. Uh, And that's that's what we've been singing today. uh, that's what we've been singing, the new song that we've been singing based on the Apostles' Creed over the last two weeks. We've been singing this line, I believe in God the Father, mighty and eternal Lord. He alone is the creator, forming all things by his word. So that's the Apostles' Creed. Uh, what if we consult our trusty SLE church statement of beliefs? What does our, what does our church say about this? Uh, Well, we read this about God the Father. It's kind of cut off at the end there. But it says, God the Father is the creator of heaven and earth. By his word and for his glory, he freely and supernaturally created the world out of nothing. So we're happy to say, we're happy to sing, and we're happy to believe that God the Father is the creator. But is this okay to do? Now, remember two weeks ago, uh, we learned that the three who's of God are one what? The three who's of God, Father, Son, and Spirit, are one what? One divine essence, one divine being. Father, Son, and Spirit are all equally divine. They are all one God. And in order to be equally God, they must share the same divine, undivided will. They must share in the same will. And because they share the same undivided will, all of God's actions in the world are triune and undivided. 
including the act of creation. So does that mean that the Apostles' Creed is wrong? Or that SLE Church's statement of beliefs is wrong? Well, let me say up front that they are not wrong, so you can, you can rest easy, it's okay. Uh, but let me also say that knowing that it is the triune God who is creator makes a big difference too. And so to explain why, we need to take a look at some key passages of the Bible and see how God's act of creation reveals who he is as the triune God. Now, you've got an outline there. We're gonna, uh, you can see that we're going to jump through a bunch of passages. And so if you can, I'd love you to keep up in your Bible. So uh, I'd love you, if you have your Bibles there, to turn with me to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 1. I'll, I'll give you some time to find those verses, but the verses will also appear on the screen, so don't stress too much. Uh, But Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Let's begin at the beginning. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. Let me read for us the first three verses. All right? Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. Uh, Now, a few things I want us to notice from these verses. Uh, These verses tell us that God is the creator. God is the creator. He is not part of creation, nor is he created. Uh, Creation has a beginning, but God does not. Notice there, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God already is. He already exists. He exists before the beginning. And so we say God is eternal. He's uncreated. He is the self-existing creator. Uh, And we say that creation receives its existence from him. Secondly, The fact that creation has a beginning implies that God creates out of nothing. He creates out of nothing. It's not as if there are some pre-existing material elements lying around before the beginning of time for God to then use for his creation. Uh, No, he creates the world. He creates creation out of nothing. Before the beginning, God is but nothing else. Uh, With that said, I think the rest of Genesis 1 does describe uh, God creating by forming and ordering things out of material elements that he has already made. But in order to do that, God has had to create out of nothing. And thirdly, these verses reveal to us that God creates through speech. God speaks and creation happens. Now, do you notice what's missing from these verses? What's missing from these verses is any mention of God's triune nature. There are allusions, yes, if you, if you kind of, if you read into it a little bit, uh, but we need more revelation from other parts of the Bible first before we can make sense of these allusions. And so now let's turn to Psalm 33. 
Psalm 33, which Chi helpfully read out for us earlier. Psalm 33, and we're going to focus specifically on verses 6 to 9. So Psalm 33, <clears throat> Psalm 33, it's a psalm of praise. Uh, we're going to focus in on verses 6 to 9. <clears throat> so let me read from verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Here in Psalm 33, we see the triune nature of creation start to take shape. Uh, Verse 9 affirms that Yahweh spoke, and it came to be. Yahweh God creates by speaking. Uh, We saw this already in Genesis 1, um, but it's in verse 6. It's verse 6 that introduces some new ideas into God's uh, speaking act of creation. We're told that by the word of Yahweh, the heavens were made, and by the breath of Yahweh's mouth, all their hosts. Uh, Now, hosts is just another word for army. Uh, And so, you know, if if it's the host of heaven, it's likely referring to the stars in the sky. So the breath of the mouth or the stars in the sky, or the starry host, you might say. So here in in Psalm 33, we have God creating uh, by speaking, by word, and by breath. And immediately you can kind of understand how those three things relate, right? When you speak, you speak words. And when, as you speak words, you breathe out the words that you speak. Uh, now, you might think that all that's happening here is just some clever uh, lyricists. Uh, the psalmist has just been really clever with his lyrics, trying to just, uh, you know, get us into the psalm. Uh, but two things cause us to uh, think that it's more than just clever uh, lyric writing. Uh, the first is that the word for breath here in verse 6 also appears in Genesis 1. Uh, It's the word for spirit. So the word for breath, the word for spirit, is the same word. Second, uh, the phrase, the word of the Lord, uh, is actually a very significant phrase in the Old Testament, and it's a phrase that then gets picked up in the New Testament as well. So so again, we have hints, uh, we have more than what we have in Genesis 1, but we have hints of something triune within creation, uh, but not quite enough to say anything significant yet. So let's now turn to John chapter 1. We had a look at this last week uh, when we looked at uh, God speaking, uh, but we're going to approach it from a different way and look at it in terms of his creation. So John chapter 1, uh, in John chapter 1, you'll notice that uh, the Apostle John deliberately uses the words in the beginning. Uh, It's an echo here of Genesis 1. Let me read for us John 1, 1 to 3. And notice how John describes the Word in relation to creation. So John chapter 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. 
Now, it's very clear here that the word uh, is not just a synonym for God speaking. The word is referred to as a hymn. And a few verses later, uh, if you look down in verse uh, 14, it is clear that this word uh, in, in John chapter 1, verse 1, is none other than the divine person of the Son in human flesh, Jesus Christ. And what does John say about the Son? Well, he says that all things were made through him. We see here that the Son, who is the Word of God, is critical to the work of creation. And we can see how it is that the person of the Son is distinctly involved in creation. Uh, Creation is made through him. Uh, Now, the Apostle Paul puts it like this in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. Don't worry about turning today. I'll just read it out here. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6. This is how Apostle Paul puts it. He says, There is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom uh, we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. We see here that the creation is from the Father, and it is through the Son. Now, why would the apostles John and Paul talk about it in this way? Why is, it, why is creation from the Father and, and through the Son? Why is it not from the Son and through the Father, for example? <clears throat> well, it seems that the apostles understand that uh, the, the distinct relations between uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit have some bearing on how the persons of God are involved within each triune action of God in the world. Now, that was a long sentence, uh, uh, but let me say it in other words. Uh, the apostles seem to understand that how God works in the world is shaped by who God is within himself. The, the, the relationships between Father, Son, and Spirit have some sort of bearing on how it is that God then acts in the world. Um, that, that's, that seems to be what the apostles understand when they say this. And so let's unpack that a little bit. Um, remember that the persons of God are distinct uh, only in their relations to one another. Uh, we distinguish them based on the fact that the Father is the one who fathers the Son. The Son is the one who is the Son of the Father. And the Spirit is the Spirit that proceeds from the Father and the Son. That's, that's how they are distinguished from each other. That's how they relate to one another. Another way of saying this is that their relations are distinguished based on their origins or from where they came from. So this is what I've tried to depict in this diagram here. Uh, You see, the father is from no one. His origin is no origin. The son is from the father. That's why the arrow goes from the father to the son, not the other way around. The Spirit is from the Father and the Son. That's why the arrows come from the Father and Son to the Spirit and not any other way around. And you see how each, uh, each three of the persons of the God are distinguished by their relations uh, based on where they come from. The uh, Father is from no one. The Son is from the Father. The Spirit is from the Father and the Son. Um, the fancy theological terms that we use for this is that the Father is unbegotten. Uh, beget, 
uh, is just an old way of, of saying that a man has had a child. You know, uh, you know Steve begets Jaden. That's, that's what you might say. You don't really say it too much, that much these days. But uh, we say that the father is unbegotten because no one, no thing has begotten the father. We say that the son is eternally begotten. He is eternally from the father. And we say that the spirit is eternally proceeding. The spirit is eternally from the father and the son. Uh, now, in saying that... Uh, these relations are what distinguish the father. And it, you might be tempted to say that, oh, because the father is unbegotten, then he's more important than the other two. Um, but we need to be careful to say that these relations don't suggest that there's any sort of hierarchy or pecking order between the divine persons because the divine persons are all equally God. The only order that there is is that the son is begotten from the father and the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, and these relations which are based on their or- origins is the only way that the divine persons are distinct. And any other distinction that we see between the divine persons, and this one, this is important, any other distinction that we see between the divine persons, such as the distinctions we see in God's triune actions in the world, all of those distinctions actually just, are just flow-ons from this. Any distinction that we see is just a flow-on from these distinctions we see in their relationships based on where they come from. Uh, This is how theologian Michael Horton summarizes the way in which these distinct relations flow out into God's triune relations. He says this, In every work of the Trinity, the Father is the source, the Son is the mediator, and the Spirit is the is the person who brings about within creation the appropriate effects of that living and active word. And I I shortened that phrase to just say, the Spirit is the enactor of God's actions in the world. And and so, for example, if you think back to last week, think back to to God's triune action of speaking, uh, we would say that it is the Father who speaks. He is the speaker. He is the source of uh, God's speaking. He speaks in the Son, in the Son who is the full and final word that is spoken. And God speaks through the Spirit. Uh, The Spirit is the one who brings this full and final spoken word into our hearts and makes it possible for us to understand what God is saying. Can you see how the trying action of speaking reflects Uh, those distinct relations of origin between the Father, Son, and Spirit? Uh, Let me put it uh, in this way. The Father, the unbegotten, speaks in the Son, the eternally begotten, and through the Spirit, the one who eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. Who God is within himself uh, takes some form of how he acts in the world. Well, uh, we've looked at this, uh, you know, we've looked at it loftily and we've looked at it through the act of speaking. What about God's triune action of creating? Uh, well, based on our theological reflections and based on thinking about these relations between the Father, Son, and Spirit, we say that the creation is from the Father and not from the Son because the Father is the eternal begetter. He is the unbegotten. 
And, so therefore, and he is therefore, as the eternal begetter, he is the source of the Son and the Spirit. And so we say that the Father is likewise the source of creation. Or in other words, we might say that he is the originating cause of creation. Creation originates from the Father. He is the one who initiates creation by speaking. Uh, and just as an aside, uh, because we can say this, that's why we're comfortable uh, saying that the work of creation is uh, attributed to God the Father. That's why in the Apostles' Creed we can say, I believe in God the Father, creator of heaven and earth. That's why SLE is not being heretical in the statement of beliefs. Uh, we can recognize that uh, God the Father is the creator, <clears throat> even as we recognize that creation is an action of the whole triune God. Um, so creation is from the Father. Likewise, creation is through the Son, not through the Father, because the Son is the one who is eternally begotten of the Father. Uh, we, we, we read last week that the Son is the radiance of God, the glory of God, the exact imprint, the exact expression of His being. That's the way the Son works. He, he, he kind of uh, you know, reflects the Father. And so as the Father originates or initiates creation, the Son expresses and enacts this creative intent. Just as, the words, just as words are the expression of speech, the Son, as the divine word, is the creative expression of the Father's creative speech. And so we can say that the Son is the creative cause of creation. The Father speaks the word of creation, and the Son is the word of creation that brings creation into being. So that's the Father and the Son. What about the Spirit? What about the Spirit? Well, just as the Father and the Son breathe out the Spirit, the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son, so the Father and Son creates by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who enacts the Word and brings order to the formless chaos uh, that we saw in Genesis 1. The Spirit is the one by whom God breathes the breath of life into humanity in Genesis chapter 2. The Spirit is the one who holds all of creation together, sustaining the order and the life of everything in it. And the Spirit is the one who is at work within creation today, leading everything, all of creation, towards God's good and final purposes for His creation. And so we can say that the Spirit is the perfecting cause of creation. The perfecting cause of creation. The Father speaks the word of creation through the Son, and the, uh, the Spirit enacts this creative word, by forming, ordering, and preserving, and holding together creation. So where has our reflection on God's trying action of creation taken us? Well, we've seen that the Bible reveals to us that God's action of creating is triune. God the Father speaks creation into being through the Son and by the Spirit. In the one undivided triune act of creation, the Father is the originating cause, the Son is the creative cause, and the Spirit is the perfecting cause. 
So then it matters whether or not we say that our creator is triune. It matters. But it's also, it's okay to recognize that God the Father is the creator. But we do so with the understanding that the Son and the Spirit are also the creator together with the Father. All right, so with all of that big theological thinking, let's now return to our question from the beginning. We know it matters that our creator is triune, but what difference does it make for us, apart from your brains hurting a bit with all this new information from the last 15 minutes? Well, to answer this, I want to take us to Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. Ooh, that's not what I wanted. Yes, Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. So turn your Bibles there to Colossians chapter 1. This will be the last part of the Bible we look at today. Um, This passage touches on a whole bunch of things we've already talked about. Uh, And I want to use the passage to help us to consider some of the implications of God being our triune creator. Uh, And the big overarching implication I want us to take away is this. Uh, You listening? God's triune nature means that he has complete freedom with respect to his creation. God's triune nature means that he has complete freedom with respect to his creation. Let's take a look at Colossians 1 uh, and unpack that a bit further. Now have a look at Colossians 1 verse 15. Uh, Paul is talking here about the divine person of the Son. Uh, And notice how uh, he is ascribed as the image of the invisible God, uh, which is what we would expect uh, for a description of the one who is the eternally begotten of the Father. Right? Uh, Notice also, uh, further down, that uh, it is by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Again, this is consistent with what we've already wrestled with. Now have a look at the first half of verse 17. And he is before all things. He is before all things. Now, normally there are two ways you can be before something. Uh, it, it can refer to position. So I am standing here before you, you know, I, that, which means I'm standing here in front of you. It, it can refer to position or it can refer to time. So the 9 a.m. service is before the 11 a.m. service. Um, you, know, you arrived before the start of service. You know, there, there, there's, there's, it's, it refers to time. Uh, so it could either refer to position or to time. And I think in verse 17, it probably refers to time. And you think about it, this, the implication of this phrase is quite profound. He is before all things. All things. I take it all things means everything. Even time itself. Before all things, before anything, the Son is. God is. Now, we touched on this point a bit when we looked at Genesis 1, but it's worth making this point again. The one God who is Father, Son, and Spirit is eternal, uncreated, self-existing. And He is all of this before any act of creation. God is fully who he is without 
creation. He is complete and satisfied and glorious in himself. He has no need for creation. He has no need to create. It's not like God is alone and without love and therefore needs to create someone to not be alone with and for them to love him. No, God enjoys perfect love, perfect communion, perfect fellowship within himself. And so because God is complete in himself, because of his triunity, we know that God freely creates. God creates not out of need. He creates out of his loving freedom and out of his good pleasure. Creation is an evidence of God's grace. This is the first aspect of God's freedom with creation. For the next, you don't have to go very far. Have a look at the second half of verse 17. Second half of verse 17. In him, all things hold together. Now, this verse reminds us of the fact that while God doesn't need creation, creation needs God. How is it that creation is able to continue? How is it that the sun continues to burn, that gravity continues to pull, that our lungs continue to breathe, that our hearts continue to beat? It is because God is holding all things together in the sun by the power of the Spirit. If God were to cut off his relationship with his creation, uh, this wouldn't impact God. God God completely is who he is without creation. But it would result in all of created reality falling apart into oblivion. God, God, God doesn't need to keep creation together. Uh, God has no need to sustain his creation. And because God in his triunity has no need to sustain his creation, we know the fact that he does means that he does so freely. We know that this means that God freely relates to his creation. The fact that our creation hasn't fallen apart, the fact that I'm still standing here, is evidence of God graciously holding all things together in the sun. Now, with that said, we live in a world where many do not recognize their need for God. Uh, This began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3 when the first humans thought they could be like God themselves. And ever since then, creation has been subject to the consequences of this broken relationship. And the fact that creation still exists, even though its human rulers have rejected their need for God, is an indication of how immense God's grace is to his creation. The reality is, without any sort of intervention, creation and humanity within creation will ultimately, eventually fall apart because of that broken relationship. Which leads us to the third aspect of God's freedom with creation. Have a look at the second half of verse 15. Second half of verse 15. He, the Son... Is the image of the invisible God, 
He is the firstborn of all creation. He's the firstborn of all creation. Now, being the firstborn of all creation doesn't mean that the Son was the first created being. That is wrong. That's actually a a very ancient heresy that we need to say no to. Uh, What it means uh, to be the firstborn is that he is the heir of creation. He is the one that will inherit creation. He's the one that will inherit all things. All things were created for him. All of creation belongs to him. And jumping down to verse 20, what this looks like, what, this looks, what it looks like for, for him to be the firstborn of creation is that through him, all things will be reconciled to himself. How, how, does, how does the son inherit creation? How, how does he ensure that he is the firstborn to this creation? He does so by reconciling all things to himself, by making peace by the blood of his cross. The Son reconciles creation to Himself by restoring humanity's broken relationship with God. And in doing so, He restores and perfects the creation which rightly, rightfully belongs to Him. Now, it's, it's important to note that God does not need to do this. Remember, the triune God does not need creation which means that he does not need to redeem creation either. And so because the triune God does not need to restore creation, we know that God, when he does, he does so freely. God freely perfects his creation. That the Son stepped into his creation in the person of Jesus Christ that he humbled himself to death on a cross in order to perfect his creation is truly and utterly a free act of sheer grace. Friends, do you understand, do you see how understanding God as triune creator makes a difference? It means that God is truly free with respect to creation. It means that the triune God freely chose to create. It means that he freely chooses to relate to his creation. And it means that he has freely chosen to perfect his creation through the Son and by his Spirit. So what does God's freedom then mean for us? Well, firstly, yeah, and you need to get this into your heads. It means that God doesn't need you. God doesn't need you. Now, don't get me wrong. God, God, God loves you. God wants you. God, God loves his creation. And he, and he demonstrates this love in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He desires all to recognize their sin and to respond to his love with repentance and faith in Jesus. But God doesn't need us because He is complete in Himself. Uh, you, know that, uh, you know that movie where the guy goes, you know, oh, you complete me. God doesn't say that. God doesn't need us. And if you think about it, the fact that God doesn't need us, the fact that He is complete in Himself, makes His love all the more profound. 
Love that comes out of a need for someone is, is just selfishness. But love that comes out of true freedom is true love indeed. God doesn't need you, which means that there is absolutely nothing you can do for God. There is no good that you can do. There, is, there are no rules that you can obey. There is no success you can achieve, no victory you can win, no money you can give, no ministry you can serve that will demonstrate to God that He needs you. And sometimes in our arrogance, we can catch ourselves thinking that God is lucky to have me. God is lucky to have us. How arrogant is that? The reality is, there is nothing we can bring to God, and yet He still loves us. And that should bring us to our knees in humility and in thanksgiving and praise. Because the reality is that while God may not need us, we desperately need God. We desperately need God. We need God to hold all things together in His Son. We need the Spirit to sustain the breath in our lungs and the beating of our hearts. We need Jesus to reconcile all things to Himself by His blood on the cross. We need God to continue His work of perfecting His creation as the gospel is preached, as people find new life in Jesus, as they are restored in their relationship with their Creator, and as they wait in hope for the resurrection of the dead and the recreation of the world when Jesus returns. God may not need us, but we desperately need God. Which means that all you can do is trust that God is in complete control. In His loving freedom, the trying God created the world. In His loving freedom, the trying God continues to relate with this world. And in His loving freedom, the trying God will, will bring, will bring perfection to this world. And knowing this, knowing the freedom of our trying Creator, it frees us. It frees us from everything that is overwhelming in this world. Whether that's our expectations for ourselves, whether that's the anxieties that we feel, whether it's the uncertainties that lay before us, it frees us from needing to overcome any of these things ourselves. And it frees us instead to depend on our triune Creator. God doesn't need you, but you need God. So depend on Him, because He is our free and loving and gracious triune Creator. So friends, I want you to take a moment now to reflect on how knowing that our God is triune, how that helps you to depend on Him more, how that helps you, how that might challenge you to depend on Him more. I'm going to give you about a minute just to spend some time in reflection. You might want to read one of the passages we looked at or look over your notes or just spend some time in silent prayer.